Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. This week, I'm honored and thrilled to be joined by Todd Whitaker. Todd is a professor of educational leadership at the University of Missouri, former principal at the middle school, junior high, and high school level, consultant, national presenter, and author. Todd has written over 50 books, including the national bestseller, What Great Teachers Do Differently. In addition, Todd has written popular titles such as Dealing with Difficult Teachers, 10-Minute In-Service, What Great Principals Do Differently, Motivating and Inspiring Teachers, and Dealing with Difficult Parents. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's an honor for me. I'm very excited. And Todd, as you know, the show is centered on leadership development. I would love to hear your personal leadership journey on how you became an administrator and one of the nation's leading authorities on staff motivation, teacher leadership, and principal effectiveness. I was a math teacher and basketball coach, and I, I was, I'm sure I was at least tolerable. It was funny because there were students that I had either in math classes or in, on the basketball team that other teachers would have sent to the office or put out in the hallway. And I remember thinking, these kids aren't even hard. You know, they're not even, they're not even difficult students. And I thought if I could do something to help the teachers be more effective, it would help the students learn more. And it really was just the same reason I got into education to make a difference. I just thought, you know, if I became a principal, possibly I could become make a bigger difference. And I, But I was still itching to coach, so believe it or not, I my first principal's job, I was high school principal, varsity boys and varsity girls basketball coach. Oh, wow. And I had a small school, and I really enjoyed it. And then I moved to Jefferson City, Missouri, and was at the – we had an eighth grade center. I call it adolescence at its finest and then opened up a new middle school, Lewis and Clark Middle School in Jefferson City. And we had maybe 1,200 sixth, seventh and eighth graders in the school then and wanted to continue to try to have influence. So I moved to Indiana State University and taught in a principal superintendent preparation program for years. And now I'm at the University of Missouri doing the same thing. My daughters are both teachers here in Missouri. So we moved back so we could hang around them. And is it true that you were 25 years old when you first became a principal? Yep. So how was that experience as far as being such a young principal and having teachers that were probably twice your age? You know, what's weird is now I couldn't have a teacher twice my age, but that's a different thing as a former math teacher trying to be funny. You know, what's interesting is I reflected on this years and years ago, but for years I've been in a principal preparation program and I'll have people who go through our program and they're going... Uh, Todd, they wanted a female and I'm a male, or they wanted someone younger and I'm older. They wanted someone local and I'm from outside. They wanted someone from outside, but I'm local. And I always say, all that matters till the first student sent to the office. And if you're seen as supportive of the teachers, they don't care what your background is. And if you're not seen as supportive of the teachers, they don't care what your background is. So all of that stuff seems to matter, but it only matters until you're hired, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. And what do you wish you would have known before taking your principal position? That's a great question. You know, I learned something after I was a principal for two years and where I was principal and basketball coach and then I went to a larger school. One piece of advice someone shared with me, and it's one of my favorite pieces of advice for educational leaders, is you don't have to prove who's in charge. Everybody knows who's in charge. And the more you try to prove it, the more people try to prove you wrong. And it's just like in the classroom. The best teacher in a classroom doesn't ever have to prove who's in charge. Everybody knows who's in charge. And the worst teacher in a school tries to prove who's in charge all the time and there's 25 students trying to prove them wrong. And I think that same thing as a leader. So I'm blessed in that that's not something that's a particular challenge for me because my personality is so strong, 
but I think that that's just a, a sage piece of advice that, that can just center someone quicker. And what was one trial that you had which led to an important leadership lesson? When I was uh, first a principal, it's a very small school, obviously, for me to be a high school principal, varsity boys, varsity girls basketball coach. The principals had to go to the board meetings. And the board members, and I'm still connected to several of them, the board members, that was their social hour. So our board meetings would go till 1, 2, 3 in the morning, and I'm not kidding. And they'd be on a Wednesday night. And, of course, the next day I'm working, and they're able to, you know, to hang around, or they, they worked independently or different things. One of the things that, because of where I'm at, just as a belief system, probably one of the things that was carved out right then is to make sure, and as weird as it sounds, that I had to teach the board members, too. And not in the sense of I know anything because I am a rummy, I still am, I'm kind of a goofball, nothing. But I had to help them understand because they would want to always hire local people. And I'd say, you know, if you're going to hire someone local, they have to be good because they're not going to leave. And they would talk about the fact, well, the community will be mad at us if we don't hire a local. I said, how don't you see how mad they'll be when you fire a local? Right. And it was just the, the realization that I've got to teach them and I've got to stand up for what's right. Because if I don't, I can't ever make a difference in the school, and I might as well leave or not be a leader unless I'm going to continue to try to do things that are right, even if it may be uncomfortable for me or even the people that I'm communicating with. And, you know, when I saw the teachers in the other school, I wanted to make a difference. And if I can't make a difference with them, there's no reason to even have a principal, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so looking back in your experience, which leadership skills were the most difficult to develop? Probably every skill for me. I, every skill at every level is always difficult for me. I don't know. That's a great question. One of the things that I teach new administrators and teachers is trust your gut. And probably that is just realizing when you feel like something's wrong, almost always something's wrong. And I think that's an important thing to try to develop because you're really just on your own. And as a principal, you know, it's a lonely job at times. Even teaching's lonely. I always say teaching's the loneliest profession there is and you're never alone, which is really weird. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's trusting your instincts. It's, it, it really is when something's wrong. But I think it's maybe trying to be patient, you know, that sorting out which things really matter the most and that's what you're going to invest in versus investing in the things other people tell you matter the most. And I think that's probably a valuable lesson because everybody's issue is the most important issue in the world to them. And you have to make sure you treat it as if it's the most important issue in the world to them. But you can't let it be the most important issue in the world to you because it keeps your school from moving forward. And I think that's a lesson we all have to learn and struggle through. And this is one question I love to ask every guest I have on. As an educational leader, what is one area you want to change in education? I think the most difficult challenge in education is exactly the same as the most difficult challenge in every other profession. We don't have enough great people. And that's what we have to have. You know, there was a, a chat the other day on Twitter about getting parents more involved in schools. And I said, if you want to increase parental involvement, make sure every single student has a great teacher. Because if they have a great teacher, you have plenty of parent involvement. And if you don't, if they don't have a good, an effective teacher, parental involvement's not going to help. And I think that really is the number one thing. The book I'm working on is called How to Get All Teachers to Be Like the Best Teachers because I think that's the only key to education. In every school and everywhere in the world, you have at least one teacher that's figured it out. You have at least one teacher that's cracked the Da Vinci Code. And our job is to help everybody get to that level. When we hire people, when we work with people, that's our job. 
Think of it from an educational leadership's point of view. The biggest disadvantage a principal has is if they've never worked with a great principal, because now they have to figure it out on their own, and it's really hard to figure it out on your own. As an administrator, a lot of times you're dealing with staff, and so for those staff members who believe they're exceptional at their craft, how do you create a culture of growth? I think it's everything from getting teachers in each other's classrooms. I think the other thing we have to do as a leader, when we have people that we think of they may be more stagnant, you know, they may be more reluctant to move forward, we have to make sure we reinforce the effort as much as we reinforce the outcome. One of my first basketball teams was not a very talented team. Uh, they probably also didn't have a very smart coach, and that was me, so keep that in mind. But <laughs> one of the things that I had to do is if I only reinforced them when we won, I'd never reinforce them. Mm-hmm. When I reinforce them when they try, when they make that effort, when they take chances, when they take risks, then we have a chance of moving forward. And I think that's part of what we have to think of in terms of leadership also. And I heard you speaking once where you stated, never argue, never yell, and never use sarcasm. Why is it so yeah. critical to use alternative strategies? Because all three of those things just escalate. That's really it. They're, they're never going to lead to anything. It's something, I, it's something I call short-term pleasure syndrome. Mm-hmm. And this is part of trusting your gut, too. Think about this. You're a new teacher. Maybe you student-taught with someone who lacks high level of skill. Maybe the teacher next to you lacks a high level of skill. You hear them yell. You're frustrated because the kids, the students aren't doing what you want, and you yell. I believe there's a chance the first time you yell, the kids behave better. But what happens is if you trust your gut, you're going, I don't like that. I don't feel comfortable with that. I, I didn't get into education to be that kind of a person. If you trust your gut, you'll look for a different alternative the next day. If you don't trust your gut, the next day you'll yell again. It'll have a little less positive results. But what happens is you don't feel as uncomfortable the second time. The third time, you don't either. The reason this is so important as a leader, if you yell as a leader, you're not telling people this is okay. You're telling people this is how I want you to treat and communicate with everyone else. That's exactly what you're telling people. And I don't want to tell people that. Think about the most well-rounded students in your school. You know what's interesting? Their parents get them to do what they want them to do, but they do it through being firm I always say you don't ever have to be mean. You just have to mean it. Mm-hmm. I'm a basketball coach. I don't have to yell at my players. I just tell them you lose your man again. You're not going to play again the rest of the quarter. And I only have to say it once. The problem is typically we don't mean it. So then we have to get more and more vocal because we think somehow that's going to carry more influence. And so what are some characteristics that you believe every leader should possess in a similar role? I think you make every decision based on your best teachers and you'll never make a wrong decision. It's funny, there was a Twitter discussion just last night where somebody said there's a lot of pressure on rock star teachers and you can't have rock star teachers. You can, but you can't label them. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the leader, I always think of it this way. The leader needs to have principal's pets, but they can never be perceived as the principal's pet. What happens with your very best people? They have such a global view. They're looking out for everyone. If you ask the best person, what do you think about this? They're not thinking, how does it affect me? They're thinking, how does it affect our school? How does it affect everyone in our school? How does it affect our students? And what happens is they may have that, and you think about culture, they have a better sense of what the dynamic in a school is than the principal does. So I asked them, Mm -hmm. you know, one of my first books was Dealing with Difficult Teachers. Think about dealing with difficult teachers. Do you know when you deal with a difficult teacher? When your very best people want you to. And they only want you to deal with them when it's something that really impacts students in a negative fashion. They don't care that somebody comes to school three minutes late after their assigned time. They care if their class is left unsupervised, but that's not the same thing. And so relying on them, when are we ready to move forward? How else can we get people involved? 
I, I think that's the number one thing that I see between the great people and everyone else. And, and you can hire great teachers because average principals don't want them in their school because you know they know that you're average. And if you don't rely on them, what happens? You become afraid of them. And so when you feel like staff rapport is potentially slipping, what strategies did you use to increase teacher morale? I think one of the things that's so interesting about morale, and some of it's social media world, sometimes some of it's just the world, we think of morale as an event. You know, we think of morale as we have this uh, party or we have this thing or, or the principal kisses a pig, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. None of those things are wrong. But morale is really just that I interact with teachers, I stroke teachers, I value them, I thank them, I made them feel, make them feel important. You know, it's funny, I told a group of principals the other day, you want to make a difference, just do this one little thing, and I want to see what happens here. Go into your best teacher's classroom, go into your best teacher's classroom and leave this note. Leave a note that says, I was sitting down in the office, and I forgot what school was, and I wanted to come into your classroom so that I could remember what school was. Thanks for being here for the students, and thanks for being here for me. Is that teacher ever going to forget that, Josh? Oh, not at all. Right. And it's by being in classrooms, being visible. Just think, I walk in a room and I go, how on earth do you get the kids to be so engaged? It's incredible. I didn't want to leave. I wanted to come back and present a report to you. I mean, how does that make people feel? And instead, what happens is it's the personalization and it's, it's touching people's hearts and it's really about emotion and making them feel important. But what happens is typically we only try to do this when we need something. And that's so disingenuous. Mm-hmm. We have to do this all the time. We have to do this with everyone on a regular basis. And if you do that, I think your low points in the year aren't nearly so low. That's powerful. So what do you do with your family? What do you do with a spouse or partner? It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's great to get them flowers on their anniversary. But you know what's really weird? If you treat them in a certain way all the time, they don't even care about flowers on their anniversary. It's very true. At least that's what I tell my wife. But that's a different story. <laughs> Mine too. So what is one initiative you've implemented in your district or on your campus at one time that you're extremely proud of? That's a great question. The thing I'm most proud of is just overall tone uh, that we set in schools. But I'll tell you one thing, and this is funny because this is multi, multi years ago. We had a middle school with about 1,200 kids, and instead of doing grades and grade cards, each student got a one-page narrative from each one of their teachers six times a year. So your child would come home with eight-page open-ended narrative about how they were doing in school. I literally thought every school in the country would be doing that in two years, and I haven't found one school yet anywhere in the world that's doing it. And that was really an effort, and that shows the tribute and quality of the teachers that we had. But we felt like, and it all stemmed, and you talk about great teachers and making decisions, it all stemmed from one of my very best teachers I've ever had saying, Todd, what's a B? And we realized, how on earth can you know? Mm-hmm. And that's really where it came from. And we thought, how can parents know? Does it mean a really smart kid who isn't trying? Does it mean a kid who doesn't really caught on, but they're really a teacher pleaser? Is it a kid who did poorly on tests, but did great on homework? A kid who did great on tests, but doesn't do homework? We needed to communicate so much more with parents than that, so much more with students than that. And the teachers on their own decided to do a one-page, open-ended narrative six times a year on every student that they have. And when you have 1,200 students, that's a big commitment. As far as change, because you're talking about grading policies, and that's occurring a lot now where there's retesting and a whole host of things. So how do you work with teachers through change? You know, it's really tough because I don't think of it as change. All I want to do is work with people on improvement. Mm -hmm. 
And the thing that, that we have to be very cautious about, my real mantra is it's people, it's not programs. And yeah. that's just a belief system. You know, when we think about things like alternative seating in a classroom, you know what's weird? It works great in a great teacher's classroom. Doesn't work so well in a teacher that already struggles with classroom management's classroom. And and what's also interesting is think about even high levels of using technology in a classroom. You know what's strange? You have great teachers that use technology. You have ineffective teachers that use technology. You have great teachers that don't use technology. And you have ineffective teachers that don't use technology. Do you see how you automatically have to realize the real variable is whether people are effective. It's not whether they use technology. The real variable isn't whether they have alternative seating. It's whether they're effective. And I'm not preventing alternative seating. If that makes you more jazzed up as a teacher and that fits your students most effectively and that makes the kids more excited or makes them more appropriate, you know, deals with them individually, great. But what happens is we think if we go to school-wide alternative seating, we've solved all the problems. If we go to school-wide whatever, and that's never the way it is. It's mm-hmm. Improvement works on individuals. This teacher may need the kids in rows. Maybe this class needs the kids in rows. Maybe this class needs the kids in tables or work independently or have workstations and use them out in the hallways and extended class space. That's what we have to do as a leader. Mm-hmm. Because I've, if this makes you better, Josh, then I want to use this with you. If it doesn't make you better, I don't want to force this on you. And that's the way we have to lead. It's, it's more complicated than just a blanket proposal or a blanket solution because we found a teacher at a different school that does this. So for those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them? I think that any personality can work, so I think you have to be your own personality. Probably the advice with them is figure out who the three or four best teachers in a school are and go to them before you make decisions all the time. And But don't, don't isolate them. Don't make people know that. I'll give you an example. I'm a first-year principal. I'm 25. A kid gets sent to the office. This will really sound strange. I didn't know what to do. I never sent a kid to the office. I never even thought about kids getting sent to the office. That's how naive I was. Mm -hmm. I went to my best teacher. Her name was Jerry Murphy. It was a female. Her name was Jerry Murphy. I go to Jerry, and I go, Jerry, a kid just got sent to the office. What do I do? She goes, the first thing to do is treat it as a big deal because it's a big deal to that teacher. Even if it seems silly, it's a big deal to that teacher. The second thing is always have a consequence. Even if it's sit there for 10 minutes, what does that even mean? The third thing is always call the parent and get a hold of the parent before the student gets a hold of the parent because some of the students will taint the story, and you want to make sure you get the school story in first. And the fourth thing is go back to that teacher personally and tell them exactly what you did so that they feel supported. Josh, what do you think of that advice? Pretty good advice, isn't it? Very good advice. And you know what? The best teacher in every school anywhere can give that exact same advice to a new principal. Mm -hmm. But here's what I want you to realize. You have to find the very best teachers because the best teachers – don't run and tell everybody else. They're going to protect you because your best teacher, Josh, wants you to succeed too. You have other teachers at times don't necessarily want the principal to succeed. Right. I asked a group of principals the other day, I go, how many of you have worked with at least one teacher that would like it when they're in a bad mood if they could make the principal cry? But the best people want everyone to succeed, including the principal. So going to them, do you see how automatically you're in touch with the culture then? Yep. And it's identifying them. But what happens is, and I'll be honest, people tend to be comfortable with people who have about the same skill level they do. So great principals hang around great teachers. Average principals hang around average teachers. And ineffective principals hang around ineffective people. Realize it's like playing tennis. If I only play with people who are at my skill level, I can never improve. And if I play with people below my skill level, I can beat them. But then my game actually gets worse. But when I play with people who are above my skill level, I become more like them. And that's really the challenge for the leader. 
But the reason their leader can be competent with the very best people is because they really do want you to succeed. Other people don't always necessarily want you to succeed. Your best people always want you to succeed. So when I first began my leadership journey, my principal at the time gave me your book, What Great Principles Do Differently. And for me, being in the classroom at the time and a coach, I didn't really think about what it meant to be an administrator or a principal. And your book really revolutionized the way I thought about things. So for my aspiring leaders who are listening, out of the 50 books that you've written, what would be one book that you would recommend to help their leadership journey? What great principles do differently? It's, yeah. it's really my core. It's really my mantra. My books may not be good, and I, I really mean this. You write a book, you don't even know. You know, I mean, you really don't know if it's good. But I do try to make them timeless. Mm-hmm. I don't ever try to make them about anything that involves initials. I don't ever try to make them about the latest initiative because the latest initiative goes away. But the way we treat people, the way we deal with people, you know, think about this. When we talk about we need to change in education, Josh, think about the best teacher you ever had. How would the, How do you think they are now? Oh, the same. Exact same. Right. And you wish you had a whole school full of them, don't you? Yep. Yep. And they don't need alternative seating and they don't need technology. And maybe they used it and maybe they would implement it. So I'm not trying to act like they don't. But it's sort of like dealing with difficult parents. I always say I, I teach my teachers what to say with difficult parents because otherwise they're scared of the parents. Mm-hmm. And so what I have to do is I teach you what to say to parents, but I don't teach you 50 things. I teach you one thing that works because all you need is one thing that works. And so I I want us to always be aware of that as leaders. The other thing is, you know, I talk about poor lectures, classroom, and people think the problem's lecture. The problem's poor. The best teacher in your school uses lecture some of the time, and the worst teacher in your school uses lecture some of the time. So the key can't be lecture. The key is quality. But I want us to be aware of changes in the sense of, you better be good at lecture because your alternatives to lecture are so good. You speak on the power of Twitter, and many of my guests have begun their Twitter journey due to your influence. Why did you begin, and why do you think it's such a powerful tool? It's a great question. I think there's a couple of things. One is, the one of the greatest powers of Twitter is it allows the knowledge of one to become the knowledge of all. If you don't have ways of connecting, what happens is, Josh, you have to figure it out on your own. And the people that can figure it out on their own have already figured it out on their own. And what happens is now we only need one person to figure it out and one person to share it. And all of a sudden it becomes the knowledge of all of us. The other thing is I'm in higher education. I'm just a goof. I mean, I'm just a goofball in higher education. But I can tell you this. If there's a principal or a teacher that isn't using Twitter or some method like that, they know about their school, maybe their district, their classroom. But you know what I know about? Everybody's school and everybody's district and everybody's classroom. Mm-hmm. And that's the power of social media is the fact that I can learn what everybody's doing everywhere. And then we can all think, how does this apply to me? How does this not apply to me? And you can't just do it from the tweet, but the tweet allows me to connect with you, you know, to touch base. And how do you do this? How do you implement this? Is there a way to bring this in my school? Could I come see you? Could you come to me? Whatever that is. But it's making those connections. The other reason is this. Great people are looking for other great people. And for great people, it's lonely. It's lonely and you start to think maybe the problem's you but when you find somebody else who's also striving to be the very best person they can then you realize there is another way and and that social media helps people find other people like that too in closing what is the most enjoyable aspect of leadership making a difference it's that you really matter how would you like to have a job that doesn't matter There are so many jobs that don't matter. And I'm glad all of the people that are doing those jobs are doing those jobs. 
because I want education to be available to the people that want a job that matters, that want to make a difference, because that's what you do every day. That's the satisfaction of education. That's the satisfaction of leadership is you just get to make a difference. And what a sad life it'd be to go through life and feel like what you're doing isn't making a difference. Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and share your ratings and reviews. Don't forget to use the Aspire Lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on Twitter. Todd, thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure.